Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Dozens of Palestinians were killed by Israel and Gaza today as the U.S. opened its embassy in Jerusalem. I'll talk with a BBC Middle East editor. We'll learn about an effort to connect Sikhs with their heritage left behind in Pakistan. And the Eurovision Song Contest was this weekend. We'll reflect on the winners and the losers at Eurovision. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. This morning in Jerusalem, the new U.S. embassy in Israel was unveiled as more than 50 Palestinians were killed by Israeli forces in Gaza. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu praised the decision to move the embassy at a ceremony in Jerusalem. Last December, President Trump became the first world leader to recognize Jerusalem as our capital. And today, the United States of America is opening its embassy right here in Jerusalem. Thank you. Thank you, President Trump, for having the courage to keep your promises. Today, the embassy of the most powerful nation on earth, our greatest ally, the United States of America, today its embassy opened here. President Trump joined the celebration by video from Washington, D.C. Today, we officially opened the United States Embassy in Jerusalem. Congratulations. It's been a long time coming. Israel is a sovereign nation with the right, like every other sovereign nation, to determine its own capital. Yet, for many years, we failed to acknowledge the obvious, the plain reality that Israel's capital is Jerusalem. Today, we follow through on this recognition and open our embassy in the historic and sacred land of Jerusalem. And we're opening it many, many years ahead of schedule. Former U.S. presidential candidate Mitt Romney condemned the decision to pick evangelical leaders Robert Jeffress and John Hagee to pray at the invocation at today's ceremony. Romney tweeted today, Robert Jeffress says you can't be saved by being a Jew and Mormonism is a heresy from the pit of hell. He said the same about Islam. Such a religious bigot should not be given, giving the prayer that opens the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. That was a tweet from Mitt Romney today. Here are a few of the pastor's controversial comments on religion. Mohammed was nothing but a bloodthirsty warlord who beheaded 600 Jews who would not follow him into battle. Islam is wrong. It is a heresy from the pit of hell. Mormonism is not Christianity. It has always been considered a cult by the mainstream of Christianity. Here's the deep, dark, dirty secret of Islam. It is a religion that promotes pedophilia, sex with children. 
That's Robert Jeffress, who spoke today at the U opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. And evangelical leader John Hagee was also a controversial choice to speak. Here are some of his thoughts on religion and modern society. If a nation does not obey the law of God, the judgment of God comes. Fast forward to the year 2001. What happened in the year 2001? 9-11 happened in America. You could only say that this was the judgment of God on our country. God paints the portrait of the ideal woman, and it takes time to mention that she is a mother. If the secular humanist of the 21st century took his brush to paint the portrait of the thoroughly modern Millie, it would be with a cigarette dangling out of her mouth, smoke twirling out of her nostrils, language that would make a sailor blush. Her breath would smell like a brewery, a condom in one hand and the feminist manual in the other, listing the local abortion clinics to snuff out the life that was within her body. The Supreme Court in Washington has handed down its decision in a 5-4 ruling supporting same-sex marriage. But the Supreme Court in heaven has handed down its unanimous decision and a 3-0 ruling from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Marriage is exclusively between a man and a woman. This Supreme Court has made America the new Sodom and Gomorrah. That's evangelical leader John Hagee speaking in the past. He was also chosen today to speak at the opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. Before that was uh, evangelical leader Robert Jeffress. One of the other people who spoke today for about 12 minutes was Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and senior advisor. He spoke in Jerusalem at the opening of the ceremony of the U.S. Embassy, and one of his roles in the White House is to broker Middle East peace. In December of last year, President Trump announced to the world that the United States would finally recognize the truth, that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. He also declared that we would soon move our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and just five months later, we are standing on these grounds. While presidents before him have backed down from their pledge to move the American embassy once in office, this president delivered. Because when President Trump makes a promise, he keeps it. (laughs) President Trump was very clear that his decision and today's celebration do not reflect a departure from our strong commitment to lasting peace. A peace that overcomes the conflicts of the past in order to give our children a brighter and more boundless future. As we have seen from the protests of the last month and even today, those provoking violence are part of the problem and not part of the solution. That's Jared Kushner speaking today at the opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. More than 50 people have been killed in Gaza with thousands injured. Uh, The shootings were prolific today. We're going to talk now with Sebastian Usher, a Middle East editor for the BBC, about the killings in Gaza and the opening of the U.S. Embassy in Israel. I mean, I think it's competing realities, competing narratives, isn't it? I mean, essentially, the Trump administration, with Jared Kushner as their point man, has been saying we have a comprehensive Middle East peace deal, but at some point we're going to present to the world. That was meant, I 
believed to have already been disclosed. And actually, President Trump's decision, his announcement about Jerusalem, was probably one reason why it hasn't yet been released. So I think what Jared Kushner is trying to do there is to separate what was going on in Gaza from what he and the Trump administration have in terms of a peace deal to lay on the table. I think like Israel, uh, their position is that what's happening in Gaza is in a sense not a reality or not that important a reality. This is a kind of holdout, according to them, by the extremists, by Hamas. It's their last ditch effort to get people out there, to get dead bodies on TV, to try and divert the story and make it something different. From a Gazan perspective, that's obviously quite the opposite. I mean, yes, Hamas and other organisations have been involved in these protests, no doubt. But there's also been a groundswell of popular opinion moving towards this and a sense of frustration and anger that was further fueled by President Trump's announcement uh, back in December. And this sort of sense that there's nothing left to lose, which from time to time we've seen amongst the Palestinians when the worst violence, the worst unrest has happened. We're beginning to get a sense of that from today. The casualty figures today are really very, very big compared to what's been happening over the past six weeks of this protest, which in a sense peaked in the first couple of weeks, then seemed to go down. This is a resurgence and beyond of this. This is the worst casualty toll amongst Palestinians since the 2014 war. And this could continue for several days. So I think that needs to be taken into account. Sebastian, do you think that it's realistic that the Trump administration wants a Middle East peace deal? The Most observers seem to think that this embassy in Jerusalem seemed to negate that entirely and that no Palestinian leader is going to sign on to any peace deal You know, while there's this situation and all these uh, bodies. Well, the Trump administration tried to finesse that by essentially implying that the Palestinians don't really need to be involved in the deal. They will be presented with it. I mean, Jared Kushner has made a big thing that he went round to everybody. He listened to everybody. He's taken in what they were saying. Even in his speech today, he was saying that both sides, Israelis and Palestinians, may see that they'll actually gain more than they even give in a deal. But that isn't the sense, I think, that uh, most people watching what's been going on, not just Palestinians, but around the world have felt that this is a gamble, essentially. And we'll see if it's actually played out in reality or not, because it hasn't yet been by the Trump administration, that by disrupting the whole way things have gone before, by taking purely business angle to this, saying, let's get the most difficult part of a deal off the table before we even start the talks, take Jerusalem away. They've been implying this will make things easier rather than harder. What you see in Gaza today implies quite the opposite. But Kushner and Trump and his administration are essentially saying, don't look at that. Don't be misled by that. That's just a passing thing. It doesn't really matter that much. Things have changed. And I think the other thing that they're putting a lot of their faith in is the change in the Arab world in some of the most significant countries like Saudi Arabia, which now sees clearly Israel and the Palestinians as a less pressing, urgent cause than the face-off against Iran. And in that face-off against Iran, Israel is proving itself at the moment to be a useful ally for 
for the Saudis, for the other countries that are embroiled in this and have brought President Trump very, very strongly into it as their supporter. His uh, withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal was part of that. So I think they see a bigger game plan. I mean, essentially, the impression I get is that they're going to present a deal which the Palestinians will not necessarily have approved or signed off on any way before it's announced, if it's announced. And they'll say, that's it. That's the reality. Just as today, Kushner and President Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu are all saying, we're just acknowledging reality. This is history. We have to face this. Implied in that is the Palestinians have to face up to this, even if it's not the history that they believe is the reality, even if it's not the reality that they believe is reality. This is it. There's nothing else. The Palestinian perspective doesn't really exist anymore. And I think the frustration, anger you've seen will just grow the more that sense increases. And tomorrow it's going to be Nakba Day and the protest is supposed to be bigger than today's and they'll push their reality. Yes, I'm sure we'll see that. I mean, it's died away now, mostly today. But I think we'll see again uh, this attempt, whether it's actually a genuine attempt to cross into Israel or to push the Israelis to believe that that's going to happen. So the sniper fire intensifies. This isn't quite what the Americans and Israelis are painting it as, that it's Hamas using Palestinians as pawns. These are people who believe in the cause, who believe that they can gain nothing except by getting the world's attention through their suffering, but it's been lost. And this is the way to get it back. And I think we're going to see that tomorrow and we may see it through the rest of the week. And that will decide to some extent where things go from here. Sebastian Usher is Middle East editor at the BBC. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about an effort to connect Sikhs with their heritage left behind in Pakistan. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's estimated that as many as 2 million people died and 14 million people abandoned their homes in 1947 at the partition of India. One of the tragedies was disconnecting people from the Sikh religion with a huge part of their heritage in Pakistan. Amardeep Singh has documented Sikh cultural sites in Pakistan. He has two great big coffee table books. One's called Lost Heritage, the Sikh Legacy in Pakistan. And the next one is called The Quest Continues, Lost Heritage. And I had the honor of seeing him speak yesterday at the Sikh Religious Society in Palatine. And it was great to meet you there. And it's great to have you here. Thank you very much. 
I think most listeners probably don't know much about the origins of the Sikh religion, uh, but it was started really in Pakistan in, in Lahore and uh, in around 1500. Yeah, so Sikhs uh, are about 30 million around the world today. Uh, it's the fifth largest religion and it's probably the least understood. So that's a fact. Um, the Sikhs are visible because of what they look like in terms of the turbans and beard uh, in the males. Uh, yes, it did start in the region that became Pakistan in 1947. It was not Pakistan in that time, right? So um, the the founder of the faith, Guru Nanak, uh, in 1469, he was born. Uh, he was quite a visionary where the cultures were coming and meeting along the river Indus uh, from the Indian side on the east and on the Central Asian. They were coming and merging in the land of five rivers, which was Punjab. Uh, it basically evolved as a movement to bring together people, not to actually make them divided based on the religious values and other things. Um, and that movement slowly grew up into uh, empire, which was led out of Lahore um, and under the, under the able leadership of Ranjit Singh. And uh, it, gained, it was quite a plural and a secular empire. And where the direction changed was that the British, having come into India from Calcutta uh, in 1700s, moved westwards and they came to Punjab and in 1799 that was checkered. It was the last standing kingdom that was sovereign and uh, before what became India and Punjab was a separate kingdom under the Sikh leadership. And uh, in finally in 1849 after the second Anglo-Sikh war it collapsed and the empire became a part of what became British India. The key here is that 98 years later in 1947 as the British are leaving the what was the British India uh, they decided to divide it based on religious lines. Uh, a democracy that was founded based on religion uh, led to uh, a concept which was a two-nation theory, uh, which assumed that the Hindus and the Muslims could not live together. Uh, and that resulted in uh, division of India and formation of Pakistan and India. And the Sikh community was ousted from the lands as much as the Muslims were ousted from Punjab on the east side. Can you give us some idea of how much the Sikhs left behind in Pakistan? Because you had maps up on the wall yesterday, and uh, it looked like most everything that they that uh, their, of their culture and heritage they had to leave behind. Yeah. So, so first and foremost, one needs to understand the cleansing that happened on both the sides because of civil war did not just impact the Sikhs. I want to make that sure. very clear, uh, because Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs all fought in that civil war for the blood of each other in 1947. Now, that's history. But from a Sikh perspective, because my work is on the Sikh legacy remnants in Pakistan, which I'm exploring after seven decades, the one slide that I showed was that uh, if you take in 1849 what was the empire of the Sikhs uh, from Lahore and you then map it on what became India and Pakistan 98 years later in 1947 – the one point that stands out is 80% of that territory is today in the territories that became Pakistan and literally only 14 to 15,000 Sikhs are living there in Pakistan today. So in the cleansing uh, that happened, the Sikhs as they moved out, they pretty much left most of the heritage and the footprints in the lands that became Pakistan. Give us an idea what that means in the number of gurdwaras and cultural buildings there. Oh, every place, every nook and corner had the life of the Sikhs pretty much intertwined into the culture, which was a pretty secular, pluralistic culture because faiths were living together in that area. Uh, I think the key is not about 
how many sites, because very, very tough to estimate after seven decades when no work has been done in this domain. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to travel to 126 cities and villages across Pakistan, right from the northernmost territories to the southernmost parts. And I found footprints tangible and intangible in every place. But what I think the point that I want to make is that when communities get ousted from their traditional lands, where they've kind of churned their entire history and one event throws them out, which is something that's happening in the world even today. Communities get displaced. And then you ask the generations later on, and in this case, 70 years later, if you had an access to go back to your lands, and if you ask a Sikh today, they cannot think more than two or three religious sites that are open and operational. And that is the point that one is trying to make is that, that legacies and their footprints, if not allowed to be accessed, get reduced to religion. I'm talking with Amardeep Singh, and we're discussing the Sikh cultural sites in Pakistan that he's explored in his books, uh, Lost Heritage, and the quest continues, Lost Heritage. Uh, I don't think um, uh, most people, I mean, tell me a little about yourself, because I, I imagine it's pretty interesting to go to Pakistan and do this work and try to um, try to uh, uh, unearth cultural centers and, and ruins and all sorts of things that you've done um, you're, you live in Singapore, and you chose to do this after, after a career change. Um, I don't know if I made a choice for a career change, but I stumbled upon something. I'm actually qualified as an engineer, and I've done uh, an executive MBA from University of Chicago. So in many ways, I have an educational footprint from this city. Um, but I have made my career with American Express and in the corporate world where I was for 25 years. And uh, the last role that I did for eight years when I left in 2014, uh, in the American Express, I was the revenue management head uh, um, based out of Singapore for Asia. So it was a pretty demanding and challenging role. Uh, but sometimes you can rationalize things when you look back in the past as to, okay, this is how it happened and I made an effort. But reality is, as I was living the moment, I didn't know what I was doing because I was just doing a 29 to 5 job in the American Express. But what I was doing was I was very passionate about the subject of history, spirituality, visual arts, and also I was writing for magazines. And when in 2014 I stepped out of American Express, I think the divine chose that he's prepared now to undertake another task and he shut my doors for the corporate world. As much as I tried, I could not (laughs) re-enter for whatever reason and then starts my journey in 2014 from a casual visit to Pakistan. And I call myself as an accidental author and accidental researcher because what we've done in in a short span of three years is to generate 1,000 pages uh, of a journey across 126 cities on a subject that the world has been silent for seven decades. And I can't understand why the educational institutions have not taken on the subject to research in the lands that became Pakistan because UNESCO's World Banks and the others are looking at sites of the Buddhist era and the many other uh, you know, dynasties and religions, uh, but no one has looked into the subject. So I think in many ways, I'm a pioneer who's, who's kind of seen and documented with a hope to bring about change in the minds of the people that this subject also needs the world's attention. When you go back and look at some of these sites in Pakistan, what are they today? I mean, there's you mentioned there's a few prominent ones. I was at the Lahore Fort about five years ago and saw uh, a pretty prominent Gurdwara there. Um, but there's some that seem to be in a state of ruin. There's others that have been uh, – you showed a slide yesterday of one that was restored and is acting as a library now in a really nice-looking library. 
Yeah, so one needs to first understand when the uh, civil war happened and the ethnic cleansing happened, and you you talked about 14 pe- million people moving across the borders, 2 million people dead. Um, this was a human crisis. Uh, and as uh, people from East moved to West into Pakistan, which became at that time, um, the people who were poor did not have a home to stay. What they needed was a roof. And the Sikh temples typically are large in the plinth area, you know, because it's a more of a congregational type. Typically in a Hindu temple, it's smaller plinth areas. A lot of the population went inside the homes and the and the uh, Sikh temples and made them their home. Now, over a period of time in seven decades, these places that are lying in the, in the prominent uh, commercial areas have actually taken the toll. They've kind of, people are leaving them. No one's destroying them consciously, but neither is it the site owned by them because technically it's not their, their ownership. They're just staying there for seven decades. So those places have finished off. At the time of partition in 1947, the founder of Sikh faith, Guru Nanak, his birthplace um, was in Nankana Sai, which is about a two-hour journey from Lahore. That remained open because the government of Pakistan and India and the Sikh community decided that at the bare minimum, minimum you've got to keep this place operational. But thereafter, everything went into, a, into an oblivion. And then in the last 20, 25 years, I thank the Pakistan government that, that they have restarted about 24 uh, historic gurdwaras, as we call it, the Sikh temples, and they are operational. So that's the positive side of the story. But the problem is so big that in the remote areas, the heritage sites, which are not just temples, there are military tradition sites, the interfaith sites, art, architecture, monuments of other aspects, they, are, they have been lying unnoticed and abandoned. And, but the positive side of that is that they offer the last glimpse of what the Sikh culture and heritage was. Because I say this openly that the Sikhs, as they migrated towards India, they took on the mantle and destroyed their own heritage themselves because in the name of modernization, they didn't put the mindset into what it takes to preserve a place. So the last footprints are actually lying only in Pakistan in the remotest of the areas. And that gives us an opportunity. It's a sad story, but there lies an opportunity as to how do you preserve some of these sites for the next generation. And I imagine you learn things about Sikh culture that uh, are a little forgotten. It seems like the aesthetic of the Gurdwaras and uh, cultural centers were different than the aesthetic that's out there today. Yeah. I mean, so every every community evolves. Every community kind of restarts and reforms itself over a period of time, and especially if your roots are disengaged from you then you start recreating yourself, right? So that's what has happened as we've gone elsewhere in the world, be it the 10 million Sikhs sitting outside of India now. I mean, there's a large population in in USA itself. Everyone is adapting to the local environment and making new things, right? So the architectural elements and all those evolve. But the elements that are left there, which had evolved over 500 years for the community, are kind of forgotten, the aesthetics aspects, the the typical art form itself you see. Art actually in these places which are abandoned convey a message of of oneness, the the message of being together as a culture, which in many ways is forgotten. It's not just the architectural elements as to how the monuments look like, but the message that they used to convey in terms of the art forms has also got lost, right? So that's the aspect then I say Pakistan has as 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 a... great opportunity to partner with the with the Sikh community, to partner with the UNESCO's and the World Banks to bring in a circuit which 
can revive the interest of the broader communities. It seems like there is a opportunity to recognize um, a, a kind of broader humanity outside of just uh, religious identity here. You've got uh, a, something that can bring people together uh, and be really helpful to to everyone's culture. Yeah. So the the first thing is, I mean, I you know, in spite of all the uh, images that has been formed about certain geographies around the country, without naming any any geography, the fact is, in my pursuit as I've stepped into Pakistan, the most beneficial thing, the most optimistic thing that I find is the people themselves how they actually embrace you, how they remember how your, how your forefathers' stories that they've heard in the lands that they, they had lived together once, it's yet alive. And it's the people who've made my journey possible. So I have a faith that, you know, if I can actually see that positiveness as a sign that's yet alive, then that positiveness, even in the form of monuments, needs to be taken across the world and, and a circuit that needs to be built. And because people are great to bring in a tourist circuit, not just of the Sikhs, but of a broader communities across to see this as a world's com- common heritage, not just of the Sikhs, but if you start from the Sikh community, then the Jain, the Hindus, and also the Islamic heritage that was abandoned in the East Punjab that went into India needs to be owned as, as the world's own common heritage. One of the things you were talking about yesterday at the Sikh Religious Society in Palatine it was uh, having... Um, Congregations adopt uh, Gurdwara in in Pakistan, or have other people try, just try to go in there and rehab these places that are are falling into disrepair. Uh, that's a that's an interesting idea. Yeah. So so look, I mean, for me, for about four years of my life, I've been in a tunnel, right? And I've been in a tunnel because I just believe that there is something lying there, and I need to document it. Once you document and create a foundation. On that, you can start building castles, right? So I think we've come to a tipping point where I've got the data on the table now. The question now is, and this is literally like a startup company. I mean, it's not a company in terms of revenue, but the mindset is the same. So someone who goes in, believes, brings it on the table. Now, can we create a momentum whereby not just the Sikhs, but, but people across the community, Hindu, Muslim, Sikhs, whose forefathers belonged in these lands and lived together, can they come together and start saying, uh, we will adopt one monument? Because I need a model to showcase to the broader communities that this is how you can bring about change. And I'm willing to actually, through a foundation that I want to create, uh, bring about a change with one monument and hoping that once you've proven the, the proof of, I mean, once you've got the proof of concept, it will bring in the attention of the bigger organizations like UNESCO and World Banks to say, okay, we've got to do something on this. Someone has proven it, and that heritage belongs to the world, and this needs to be looked into. Well, you've done a beautiful job documenting the heritage in your books. Uh, the photography is fantastic. They're uh, great big coffee table books with a lot of narration about how you go about the journey and, and what you find when you're there, people you talk to. Um, it's terrific fun. Thank you very much. And thank you for giving this opportunity to me. But, you know, every moment that we can talk and bring the world's attention, I hope we can bring about change. Amar Deep Singh has documented Sikh cultural sites in Pakistan, and his books are Lost Heritage, The Sikh Legacy in Pakistan, and The Quest Continues, Lost Heritage. I saw him speak yesterday at the Sikh Religious Society in Palatine. And thanks to Rajinda Singh Mago for hosting me and all the people there. It was great to see everyone. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the Eurovision Song Contest. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Look at me, I'm a beautiful creature. I don't care about your modern time preacher. Welcome, boys, too much noise. I will teach you. You forgot how to play. My teddy bear's running away. The Barbie got something to say. Hey, 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 hey. My son says, Leave me alone. I'm taking my Pikachu home. You're stupid, just like you're smart. That's the winning song in the Eurovision Song Contest, Toy by Netta. We're going to talk about the contest now with Tony Sarabia. Good to see you, Tony. Hey, Jerome. It's been a while. It has, and it's but it is great to have you on and talking about Eurovision. I know you're a fan. <laughs> Every now and again, but this year particularly, because now in this song, it's so catchy. Uh, Netta from Israel, as you mentioned, Israel was the winner. 20 years ago, they won with a tune called Diva by Dana International, a transgender uh, performer. I played this on Radio M Friday night, and I predicted she would win. I mean, it's just, Tony knew it all along. It, it's so different <laughs> from, you know, years past. You know, as I mentioned Friday night, one thing about Eurovision for a lot of people who don't know about it, they're really big in kitsch, right? Uh, you know, you find that through and through. It's but poppy. This is this is just a little different. It, it's I think it's got mainstream potential, just like ABBA did with Waterloo back in 1974. Absolutely. I was promoting the show on Friday and saying we were going to talk about this on Monday, and I got an email from Jürgen Reinhold, and Jürgen and Alexandra Reinhold invited me over to their house oh, to watch man. Eurovision and their Eurovision nice. party, and they're here with us now. They came in. I had them to come in, and uh, thank you very much for doing this, Jürgen. Thank you for having us. Thanks. <laughs> now, um, you guys have been doing this for uh, six or seven years here, but you've been fans for forever. You remember watching ABBA in the 70s. Uh, you, this is just a part of your life, Alexander? That's true. We watched ABBA, and ABBA was amazing back then. It was so different. They sang English, and it was just great. I will never forget that was evening. That the, was that the first time that a, a, a contestant had sung in English? I think for me, it was the first okay. time I really yeah. remember. I mean, it was different. They just looked gorgeous. <laughs> but I thought that I will never forget that blue velvet uh, you know, outfit she wore. So it was just wonderful. And we've been listening to Eurovision ever since. I mean, always, you know, we've been growing up with it. Yeah. Now, does it, it takes a sense of humor kind of to to deal with it, right? I mean, you uh, can't go in there really serious and think that, that logic is going to rule. It's kind of a, everything's right. up in the air. Everything's up in the air. In some years, it's a very political voting where, you know, uh, the populist vote goes against some country or in other cases, yeah. it's but a The Russia-Ukraine thing in recent yeah. years that has was been definitely. big. Well, there was, there was certain, certainly politics involved this year with the uh, Irish 
performer uh, who had the song that had a, an accompanying video of two. Uh, it was about a same-sex romance, right. and they yes. they uh, recreated that on stage. And China, their biggest broadcaster, censored it, and therefore, uh, whoever is in charge of the international broadcast said, "Sorry, China, you're not you're not going to broadcast the finals." That's correct. That's true, and it was a beautiful performance yeah. of the two dancers on stage. I really liked it a lot. In nice. fact, we had an Irish guy um, in our audience at home, a neighbor from from us, and um, they were all very happy with the song, and you know, it was all it was in all a very good performance. Mm -hmm. uh, there were two songs about refugees, one from yeah. France and one from Italy. They were both sympathetic to refugees, and here's the Italian song. C'è chi si fa la croce, chi prega sui tappeti, le chiese e le moschee, gli mamme e tutti i preti, ingressi separati della stessa casa, miliardi di persone che sperano in qualcosa, braccia senza mani, facce senza nomi, scambiamoci la pelle in fondo siamo umani, perché la nostra vita non è un punto di vista e non esiste bomba pacifista. Non mi avete fatto niente, non mi avete tolto niente, questa è la mia vita che va avanti. Oltre tutto, oltre la gente, non mi avete fatto niente, non avete avuto niente. That's the Italian entry in Eurovision. It was a song about refugees and war. And uh, when we were watching in Jürgen and Alexandra Reinhold's basement, everybody referred to it as the two guys with hair. <laughs> two young Italian guys with great heads of hair dancing around on stage. And they were, uh, uh, they were pretty good. It was a good song. Yeah, yeah that uh, was a good song. And they were singing about war and terrorism yeah. in, in Europe and the Middle East. But at the end... They had a lighter note, like, you know, we will get through this. We will live on. So it was a great song. And a powerful video, too. I mean, yes. some really powerful images. So you, you have scorecards. I, I copied the one that Jerome had. And on the bottom it says, use your own scale, uh, for instance, 1 to 10. How did this this particular score among your group? I, and, and for me personally, I had a 10 on it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 It scored it. definitely very high. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, the, the German professional jury... Uh, gave their 12 points to Sweden, but the German popular vote went to Italy. Yeah. Ah, so this is the song that won in Germany. Yes. Yes. Ah, very At least the popular vote. Now, you can't vote for your own song. That's correct. And Germany did have a good song this time. Yes. We were very happy about that this, this year. This is not normal, right? I mean, no. normally they <laughs> not, not the past <laughs> few years. I mean, we've, Germany won twice throughout the years, but the past few years have been rough, and this one was nice. No, when we say the years, this is the 63rd year. So. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I was on the bus Friday leaving here, mm -hmm. and there were a group of German tourists sitting next to me, and I, I said, I just have to ask you, what are your thoughts on Eurovision? And they all said, what? <laughs> I said, Eurovision, you know, the song contest. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't watch that. I don't know anybody who watches that. The music's terrible. So I was, you know, because I've been told it is the most watched program in the world, it surpassing is. World Cup. So I was just a little surprised that, you know, very small sampling, of course, unscientific. Sure. But none of them uh, were interested in Eurovision. We, uh, well, we talked to our daughter who lives in Germany, and she wasn't watching either. <laughs> and she's in, in, you know, late 20s. Uh -huh. But there still is a big group of Germans that watched this, for sure. Uh, yeah, maybe not everybody would like to say, yeah, watched it. I don't know. But <laughs> Guilty no, pleasure. I mean, <laughs> Guilty pleasure. It, it, but it is hugely watched. I mean, the share in some countries is 90%. In, in, yeah. in, in uh, Iceland, I think I saw 90% of all people, 70% in a bunch of people. Uh, I mean, they're, they're getting huge shares that yeah. are un, 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 unbelievable. And for us living here in the U.S., the amazing thing is this is a public TV. 
so all the participant countries and the and the organization, the EBU, the European Broadcast Union, this is all public TV over there. <laughs> no commercial break. So I, I read. Yeah, you know, so it's we, fun to watch. Yes. Yeah. We were talking about the kitsch factor in all of this, and I, I since Netta won, I've read a couple of articles that said, well, maybe all of that's behind us now. The the whole kitsch and and gaudiness. You, you both have been watching this for many years. Number one, do you agree with that? Number two, have you seen the kitsch factor sort of diminish over the years? Yeah, I had the feeling the past ten years it's gotten a little bit better. I had the feeling in the in the in the nineties it was really I did not enjoy watching it. But maybe it's because I've been living here for a long time and it's a little piece of home when I watch it. But I I have the feeling it, it's got better. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I guess that happened uh, one of the reasons that the German song was much higher than normal is uh, this year for the first time during the selection process they had. A lot of international input. They actually brought a, oh. a jury from. They didn't rely on German taste. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now it was not completely taken out of the question. It's just uh, it moved from like half of the votes uh, to um, two thirds, and uh, they got a little bit of a. So what would uh, be attractive to the rest of the world? Because they afterwards, after after all, forty three different countries going to vote, and you don't vote for yourself. So at the end, it really doesn't matter what the local people think about the song. It's really what the rest of the world does. Uh, let's hear a little bit of Germany's song, You Let Me Walk Alone. I was born from one love of two hearts. We were three kids and a loving mom. You made this place home, a shelter from the storm. You said I had one life and a true heart. I tried my best and I came so far, but you That's Germany's entry in the Eurovision Song Contest, and I'm talking with Jürgen and Alexandra Reinhold. I watched Eurovision in their basement, and Tony Sarabia about the contest. And um, this was—it's a good song. The guy really delivers it nicely. He's got a nice voice, and mm-hmm. it's, got, it's a good ballady type song. And uh, it was the first time you can remember seeing a twelve in recent years when the yes. when the judges came in and delivered their each country yes. judges announce and, and Germany never gets a twelve and this guy got several several, several. Yeah. and they were very very happy about that <laughs> absolutely I watched uh, a little clip yesterday from German TV and one of the um, uh, singers that had participated for Germany a few years back Katja Epstein she said you know when you go out there. You have to sing it for yourself mm. and maybe for your grandma, but you have to believe it in your, uh, you know, for yourself. And I think he did that for sure. I had a question about the whole uh, concept of Eurovision. It's called Eurovision. Uh, most of the countries uh, are European countries. How is it that Israel is, par- is part, of the, part of the contest? Yeah. How does that work? I think the rules are, um, you know, a little bit open there, but uh, Israel was – um, uh, broadcasting the show for a long time. Ah. So was Australia. And Australia was invited um, uh, for the 60th anniversary to participate. So they're the only two technically not EBU members um, who have been invited. But I'm sure there's... Um, I looked a little bit at the rules yesterday. Um, there is really no specific rule that says it can only be European countries. 
So maybe we'll see China in the future or maybe even South America, some, some country yeah. in South America. Maybe, huh? maybe PBS. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the interesting things about Eurovision is that songs sometimes are, are kind of surprising that they go up. I, I didn't – I don't think anybody in your basement liked the song from Austria, but he just kept getting 12s and, and doing really well. Yeah. But it was a kind of a bland pop song. I I no, I don't. I didn't really care for the Cypress song as much. Famous. Now, yeah. see, I I I liked it because it had a great <laughs> dance beat. I kind of called it Beyonce light. The one that I didn't like that Jerome said a lot of your group liked, and it's it's only because I don't enjoy this particular kind of country music. I like the really old twangy mm-hmm. sort of almost bluegrassy stuff. That was the band Wayland from the Netherlands. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it sounded like it could it could be. Someone here in, in this Absolutely. country. It yeah. was a big hit in our basement, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Well, let's hear a little bit, a little bit of the uh, the Netherlands group uh, out Wayland, named after Wayland Jennings, and the guy comes out in the flat hat and everything yeah. looks <laughs> like Wayland Jennings. And yeah. here's a song. Between whiskey and water into wine It's a long way home When you're down and out and out here on your own It don't matter who you are when it's time to lock and load That's the Netherlands entry into the Eurovision Song Contest uh, from the group Wayland. Uh, it's a pretty good tune and everything, but I always think if you pick a genre like that, it's got to be hard to break through. If, if it's yeah. not a full yeah. pop song that everybody wants to hear, I'm still amazed that the metal groups do as well as they do. Well, metal has a very long history yeah. in Europe. Yeah. I mean, that that's part of the almost European music but pop, pop tradition. This, and this could be a whole other segment about appropriation, cultural appropriation <laughs> of music, but this guy takes it to the nth degree because he's got trying to get that twang in there, and I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't know if that's a normal thing in the Netherlands, I don't but think so. he certainly <laughs> pulls it off. He now, does. In our basement, the idea was the song was fine but the the name he should not have used the name ah uh, Waylon yeah yeah <laughs> that was the appropriation not so much the music all right let's try to sneak in uh, the song from Cyprus that uh, divides us because Tony likes it the rest <laughs> of us at the table don't like it so well but it did very well in the voting uh, so here's the song from Cyprus from Fuego it's Fuego It's even more boring when you don't have her hair going up and down, <laughs> I, back I, and forth. I like the auto-tune. 
They do that a lot in Nigeria, the pop music. And I like it's a little it's a little darker than some of the other uh, songs that were kind of like this, like the monster tune. I, mm-hmm. yeah. I didn't really enjoy no, that too much. we didn't much. like that either. But the video for this one is fun. And Cypress mm-hmm. came in second after yeah. all, right? She did a great stage show. Yeah. Truly, she she was wonderful there. Absolutely. You know, I was surprised that they had Netta sing right after she won. I mean, that must have been really difficult for her. All that adrenaline and all that excitement yeah. to, to sing that song again. Yeah, I don't know how that, uh, that happened. It, the, uh, I Now, the song contest, it goes to the winning country. So it's going to go to Israel next mm-hmm. year. Yeah. And, you know... There's plenty of controversy, and the boycott people are. I saw that the mayor of Dublin or something is boycotting it already, and um, it'll it'll get political. Yeah, even though it was a good song, and it really seemed to win on because it had a lot going for it. it yeah, it, it had a little dance going for it. It had a rap thing going for yeah. it. It 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 had uh, it, it had it. It was catchy. It had a lot going, and it had a message. I mean, it's a whole mm-hmm. part of the Me Too movement yeah. kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, her personality was really great on stage yeah. too. That, that and day. the yeah. submission deadline is in September, so there's a lot of time between now and September, and people might change their mind. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was super fun to have a good time watching Eurovision with Jurgen and Alexander Reinhold, who invited me over, and after they heard we were going to promo to do the show today, and it was great having you here to talk about it. Um, I'll look forward to next year in your basement. Absolutely. And yeah, I want to come. Yes, yes you invited. <laughs> so uh, we're going to go out on the Israeli song that won Eurovision in 1998. Diva Donna, and uh, we'll we'll see you next year at Eurovision. Tony Sarabia, thanks. Thank you, Jerome. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.